When it comes to the earthly ministry of Christ Jesus, what single word would you use to sum up our Savior's accomplishments? If you're thinking through words right now, some of you might be thinking of the word gracious, and that would be correct. Others might lean towards the word loving. There's the word sacrificial, that certainly comes to mind. And no doubt the word compassionate would be accurate. But what about the word divisive? Anybody here think of the word divisive? Does the word division best describe the earthly ministry of our Messiah? With this question in mind, I should take a moment to point out that the four gospels are actually filled with passages that accurately describe the division that Christ Jesus caused during the days of his earthly ministry. For example, it's in Matthew chapter 10 where the Lord Jesus informed his disciples that he didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but rather a sword which will end up causing division within every home. And he talked about the way that this sword, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, would divide relatives within any given home. It's also in John chapter nine where we learn that there was a division among the people. And the reason why is because they were disagreeing about the identity of Jesus Christ. And so the identity of Jesus caused division. In John chapter 10, we learn that the teachings of Jesus were also causing a division among the Jews. Some people believed what Jesus was saying and some didn't. And let's not forget that it was back in Luke chapter 12. We've already seen where the Lord Jesus asks, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? And then he answers his own question and says, I tell you not at all, but rather division." That's what Jesus said. Jesus said he came to bring division on earth. With this in mind, the word division is actually an excellent way to describe the earthly ministry of our Messiah. And not only was this true of his first advent, but this will also be true of the day of the Lord when Jesus returns to the earth and begins to divide the nations of the world into two camps. With this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering the division that Christ Jesus will eventually cause on the day of the Lord. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that, first of all, the day of the Lord will cause division. It'll be the division of relational connection. Secondly, we'll learn that the day of the Lord will be a day of division as this division causes eternal condemnation. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the day of the Lord will cause the division of emotional consternation. And with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually describing the days which will culminate in the second coming of Christ. And as you make your way to the 17th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that the Lord Jesus here is helping his disciples to understand what the world is going to be like as the day of the Lord draws nearer and nearer. Christ Jesus compared this period of time to the days of Noah, which was a time of widespread wickedness. Not only that, but Jesus also compared this period of time to the days of Lot, which was a time when sexual immorality was an accepted way of life. 
Furthermore, the Lord Jesus also informed his audience that the day of the Lord will be a visible event. And he compared his return to lightning that flashes uh, from one part of heaven to the other. It's going to be a visible event. And at the same time, Jesus also encouraged his disciples to be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour that nobody expects. And so therefore, it's not only a visible event, but it's going to happen at an unexpected time. Now, here in our text today, we find the Lord Jesus. He's continuing to describe the day of the Lord. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 17. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 34, here the Lord Jesus declares, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's describing this day when, you know, close companions here on the earth will be divided. And just to be clear, I should remind you here that the Lord is actually referring to the day of the Lord when our Savior returns in order to redeem those who trust in him. And it's on that day when many relational connections will be divided. And the reason why is because some people will be taken away, and at the same time, there will be others who are left. But now, in what way are some people taken and others left? Well, with this question in mind, I want to take a moment to point out that there are some who insist that those who are being taken away are actually the people that are being caught up in the rapture. And if that's the case, then those who are left behind will be forced to hang out with Kirk Cameron. Yeah, some people see this as a text that points to the rapture of the church and then the leaving behind of those who didn't believe in Jesus. The main problem with this interpretation, though, is that this separation is actually scheduled to take place when? On the day of the Lord. And while there are some scholars who believe that the day of the Lord is more than just a single day, some even stretch it out to the 18 months, the final or the last 18 months of the Great Tribulation, and that is possible. But what that means then is that if this text is pointing to the rapture of the church, then the rapture of the church will take place well past the period of time when the wrath of God is being poured out upon the planet. Now, why is that important for me to point out here? Well, one reason for why I point this out is because of a statement that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verse 9 where Paul declares, God did not appoint us, the church, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. From this, we can see that the born-again believer who is a church-age saint is scheduled to escape from the wrath of God. And seeing how the Lord has promised to pour out his righteous wrath upon this planet within the first half of the tribulation, well, then it only stands to the reason that the church will already be raptured before the day of the Lord begins, even if the day of the Lord is 18 months. You see, see the, the, the time of tribulation is a seven-year period. It's the 70th week of Daniel. And, and this is typically broken up into two sections. The first part, which is the tribulation, will last three and a half years. The second part 
another three and a half years. That section is called the Great Tribulation. And it's important to understand that uh, according to the scriptures, the wrath of God will begin to be poured out during the first half of the tribulation in the first three and a half years at some point in time. And since we're not appointed to wrath, then it doesn't make sense to interpret the text today as the blessed event that we commonly call the rapture of the church by which the Christian is saved from the wrath of God. To further prove my point, I should remind you of a promise that Paul presents in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's there where we learn that the day of the Lord will happen after the lawless one, or in other words, the Antichrist is revealed. So the Antichrist will be revealed. This will happen when he enforces the peace treaty there in the Middle East. This will reveal who he is. And then seven years later, that's when the day of the Lord takes place. Paul also points out that the Antichrist or the lawless one won't be revealed until after the restrainer is removed. So the restrainer is removed, the Antichrist is revealed, seven years later, day of the Lord. Seeing how the Holy Spirit is the one who was sent to restrain the mystery of lawlessness, well, then we can be certain that the removal of the restrainer is the removal of the Holy Spirit, which then occurs at the end of the church age as we enter into then the seven-year tribulation. But it's important to understand that if the restrainer or the Holy Spirit is removed, then according to the promises of Jesus Christ, the church must be removed as well. How do I know this? Well, it's in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul tells us that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's right, the born-again believer has been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. At the very moment you you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit who then indwells you. Now you are the temple of the living God and sealed into the body of Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit is removed, guess who's going with him? Those who are sealed. Because the Lord's not going to remove this sealing from us. He's not going to take the Holy Spirit from us. Therefore, if it's true that the restraining work of the Holy Spirit will be completed before the rise of the Antichrist, which is at the beginning of the tribulation, it only stands to reason that the church will have already been raptured before the Antichrist is revealed, which then kicks off the seven-year tribulation. And with that being the case, uh, we would be incorrect to think that the text that we're looking at today talks about the rapture of the church. It does not. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask, who are those being taken and who are those being left? Well, in order to answer this question, let's take another look here at Luke chapter 17. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 34. Here Jesus declares, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Now here in the beginning of this verse, we find Jesus describing the day of the Lord. And we should notice that he first refers to that night, that night. In order to grasp the reason for why Jesus refers to that night, it'll help you to know that uh, the, the Jewish day begins when? At sundown. Why? Well, because that's what the Lord said in Genesis chapter one. 
During the days of creation, we see each day encapsulated with the evening and the morning was the first day, the evening and the morning was the second day, and so on and so forth. From this, the Jews came to the conclusion then that every new day begins at sundown. That's why the Sabbath begins at sundown. So when Jesus here refers to that night, this is actually the beginning of that day. The beginning beginning of which day? Uh, The beginning of the day of the Lord. With this in mind, if you would notice with me again here at Luke chapter 17, verse 34, the Lord Jesus declares, I tell you in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Now, as we begin to take a closer look at this passage, uh, I should point out uh, briefly that there are those who use these verses to insist that the Lord Jesus here is actually endorsing the LGB community. Yeah, there are some who actually take this text and, and use it to argue that, hey, clearly Jesus doesn't have a problem with two men in one bed. And he doesn't have a problem with two women grinding. Those who hold this point of view will insist that when Jesus spoke of these two men in one bed, he's referring to homosexuals, and they believe that you know when Jesus mentions these two women that are grinding together, he's actually using this common euphemism for lesbians engaging in their intercourse. And, and with that being the case, we ought to take a moment to ask, is this a proper interpretation of the text? Was Jesus actually endorsing homosexuality and lesbianism? Well, with this question of mine, I want to take some time to consider the point that Paul was making in the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, as you make your way to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the best way to interpret the Bible is not by looking to the culture, but rather by looking at the Bible. When it comes to biblical hermeneutics or or the proper interpretation of the scriptures, we want to begin by interpreting the Bible according to the Bible. And just to be clear about this, it's important to understand that we develop theology by taking everything that the Bible says about a given topic, and as we synthesize that information, we're led to understand the fullness of the scriptures about a given topic. And this is important because, listen, there are some passages that are difficult to understand, There are verses in in the Bible that, you know, could be interpreted in a few different ways. And so we should look to other sections of, of the Bible that are more clear. And you use the clear passages to interpret the passages that are a little shady. So, so when you come to a verse like two men in one bed and someone says, oh, that's clearly talking about homosexual sex. Maybe it might just mean two men in one bed. You know, it might just mean that, you know, hey, you know, Uncle Joe came over for a visit and we only had one bed. You know, two women grinding could be a euphemism, could be innuendo, or it could just be two women grinding at the mill. So how should we understand these passages? Well, let's go to the didactic books, the doctrinal epistles, and see if there's any information that can clear things up. And uh, uh, with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll draw your attention to verse 9. Here Paul asks, do you not know that unrighteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you went through conversion therapy. Oh, wait, that's not, that's not what it says. So such were some of you. you. You were part of this list, but then what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. Paul here is assuring the Christians there in Corinth that the only way for sinners to be saved and sinners of every stripe, the only way for sinners to be saved is through the cleansing that occurs by faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must not fail to notice here that this list of sins, it includes sexual sin and and specifically the sexual sin of fornication. That's any sex outside of, of biblical marriage. It includes adultery. It includes homosexuality. It includes sodomy. Simply put, every form of sexual immorality will keep an unrepentant sinner from entering into the kingdom of God because it is unrighteousness. At the same time, those who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be cleansed. They will be cleansed and sanctified from these carnal cravings. In contrast to this, I'll remind you about the warning that Paul presented back in Romans chapter one. There he tells us that God gave them up to uncleanness. He's talking about sinners who will not repent. He says, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, a lot of the arguments that those in the LGBTQIA you know, community want to make against you know, the, the scriptures and what it says about homosexuality, they'll, they'll pick a word, oh, that, that word doesn't mean this, that word doesn't mean that. Listen, this is a clear description we're not using the words homosexuality and sodomy and lesbianism and these sorts of things. No, he's saying that women will leave what is natural for other women and men will leave what is natural for other men. That is a clear description of homosexuality and lesbianism. And this is something that God will give people over to if they refuse to repent Those who will not repent of these carnal cravings or what Paul calls vile passions will eventually receive the just punishment that the Lord is going to pour out on those who chose to reject the gracious gift of forgiveness that Christ Jesus offers to everyone regardless of our sins. We all have a sinful past. We're all guilty of of the, the works of the flesh. And yet those who will trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. 
But as we consider these passages from 1 Corinthians 6 and from Romans chapter 1, does it make any sense to interpret our text today as our Savior's endorsement of sexual immorality? Of course not. Furthermore, if Jesus here is endorsing homosexuality and lesbianism, well, why is one taken and the other left? Why in in these situations would one be taken and the other left if Jesus is applauding both of them? This isn't about Jesus endorsing sexual sin. No, instead, Jesus here is illustrating the sort of relational separation that's going to occur on the day of the Lord as some people are taken and others are left. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which was translated taken, it refers to a unique set of skills that, okay, all right. I appreciate the Liam Neeson fans. This word taken is actually used of those who are embraced as the companion of another. It's the same Greek word that the Lord Jesus used when he referred to those who will be received into the kingdom of God. And with this as the focus, let's consider the way that Jesus uses this word in a promise that he makes to his disciples. It's actually found in the gospel of John. So hold your place here in the gospel of Luke. Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 14. You see, it's here in the 14th chapter of John's gospel account where we find the Lord Jesus. He's preparing the hearts of his disciples for the days when they would be troubled by the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension of our Savior. They would find themselves at a period of time when the Lord Jesus wasn't with them and they would be troubled by this. And, And so the Lord wanted to provide them with perfect peace. You see, Jesus didn't bring peace for the planet, clearly There's been no peace on this planet. But he does provide perfect peace to those who trust in him, regardless of what's happening on the planet. Regardless of what's happening in Ukraine, regardless of whether, whether the Russians are gearing up to invade Israel, regardless of what's happening with all of this, we can have peace in our hearts by faith in Jesus Christ. And here the Lord is providing that perfect peace by presenting them with a promise about the relational connection which would eventually be restored as the Lord Jesus receives them into our Messiah's mansion. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 14. Look with me there, beginning at verse one. Here the Lord declares, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, or you might say in the father's mansion, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus was assuring the hearts of his disciples by describing this day when the Lord will receive those who trust in him. He will receive us into the mansion of our Messiah And just to be clear about this, that word receive, which is found there in verse three, it's translated from the same Greek word that Jesus used back in Luke chapter 17, where he tells us that the day of the Lord will be a day when some will be taken, received. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will receive those who trust in him into the mansion of our Messiah. And in this way, we can see how the day of the Lord will result in the division of of relational connection. That kind of sounds like a contradiction now, doesn't it? 
What is this division of relational connection? Well, listen, the day of the Lord is going to end up dividing tribulation age saints from every unbeliever. But at the same time, this division will also establish a closer connection with Christ Jesus as the tribulation age saints who are still here at the time of Christ's return, they're going to be taken. In other words, they're going to be received up as a companion of Christ Jesus and brought into the fellowship of the other saints, the church age saints and the Old Testament saints. The tribulation age saints who will be living during this time of intense persecution will be taken out of that situation and ushered into the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus where they will begin to repopulate the refurbished planet and where they will enjoy fellowship with the church age saints as well as the Old Testament saints. In this way, we see then how the day of the Lord is going to cause division while establishing a relational connection with Christ and his saints. While it's true that the day of the Lord will cause the division of relational connection, it's also true that the day of the Lord is going to cause the division of eternal condemnation for those who are left. Uh, In order to prove my point, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's referring to those who will be left. And, And I want to back up and begin reading there at verse 34. Here the Lord Jesus declares, I tell you in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Now, as we take another look at these verses, we're immediately reminded of the reality that the day of the Lord will end up causing division as some people are received as companions of Christ Jesus, and the rest, well, the rest will be left. Now, again, some people believe that these are the unbelievers who will be left behind at the time of the rapture, where they're going to have to sit around and watch, you know, Kirk Cameron, you know, and, and learn about the rapture through, you know, the Left Behind series. Listen, I, I need to remind you here that This actually takes place on the day of the Lord. And whether we're talking about an 18-month period of time or whether we're talking about a literal 24-hour period of time, this is the time when the King of Kings returns in order to establish his millennial kingdom. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well then, in what way are people left? In order to answer this question, it'll help us to understand that the Greek word, which was translated left, was being used of those who are separated from others after being forsaken, abandoned, and left destitute of God's help. You definitely do not want to be on the left. (laughs) That's just a good political joke there. But anyway, so... Listen, the same word was also used of those who are sent away after being rejected as Christ's companion. In this sense, those who will not become the companions of Christ during the time of tribulation, they will find themselves separated from our Savior as they are sent away into eternal condemnation. To prove my point, let's consider the warning that the Lord Jesus presented to the Jews who were persecuting him. If you would, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 5. 
And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Lord Jesus here, you know, he, he, and throughout the scriptures, you know, he, he's constantly warning the people of Israel about the realities of everlasting torment. And when you, when you just, you know, scan through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus constantly talking about hell, constantly warning people about hell. And while I realize that the subject of hell has become a taboo topic, I mean, you can literally talk about any kind of immorality in this world today and people will celebrate you and think, oh, you're, you're wonderful. You're, you know, just pick any topic. Go online, go to, go to your social media platform and just, just start talking about any kind of ridiculous immorality. And people applaud it. But you start talking about hell and, oh, you're one of those. You're one of those Turner burners. You're one of those, you know, people that believes that, that a God of love would send people to eternal torment. Listen, I, I take no pleasure in teaching about hell. And I know that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but desires all to come to repentance. He wants to save everyone. But those who reject Jesus Christ should heed the warning and realize that the Lord Jesus has promised a day when those who reject our Redeemer will end up suffering the resurrection of eternal condemnation. Yeah, they'll be resurrected. And then they will suffer eternal condemnation. Let's consider how Christ puts it here in John chapter 5. Look with me there beginning at verse 24. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Moses, surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has what? everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Oh, that's such good news. Those who hear the word of Jesus Christ and believe in him who sent the Lord, we have everlasting life and there is no judgment for us. But it doesn't stop with just that. You see, there's another group of people. Most assuredly, verse 25, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The Lord Jesus is assuring the hearts of those who trust in him that you know, those who believe in him enjoy everlasting life. And in contrast to this, those who will not hear his holy word and those who reject his free gift of grace, they will eventually rise up from the grave. They will receive a resurrection body. And it's at that point in time when the Lord Jesus will then judge them according to all of their wicked works. As the books are opened, the Lord Jesus will dole out a perfect punishment for every single sin they ever committed. And you better believe that those who are alive at the time of Christ's return, they will be separated from the saints of God and then sent forth unto judgment. That's what Jesus meant, means when he says that they're going to be left. They're going to be sent forth unto judgment with everyone else coming up out of the grave who will then also be judged. 
This is precisely the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 25. It's there where he declares when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats, where? On the left. The goats will be placed on the left and the reason why is because they were bad. But that's horrible. But seriously, the day of the Lord will culminate in a time of separation as Christ Jesus begins to separate his sheep from the goats who rejected his holy word. And it's in the final verse of this chapter where the Lord Jesus goes on to inform us that the goats will then be sent into everlasting punishment while the sheep will enter eternal life. In other words, as long as the sheep of Jesus enjoy everlasting life, the same amount of time the goats will experience eternal punishment. And in this way, we see that the day of the Lord is a, <clears throat> a day of division, which will result in the eternal condemnation of every unbeliever. At the same time, I, I want to also remind you of the promise that Paul presented in Romans chapter 8. It's there where he assures us that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How much condemnation for the believer? None. Zero condemnation. Do, do you still condemn yourself for your own sinful struggles? If so, stop it. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But at the end of the day, there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And in that, I have perfect peace in my Savior. I hope you do too. Those of us who have placed our faith in the sacrifice of our Savior can rejoice in knowing we are no longer living under the condemnation of the law. And yet at the same time, we must not fail to realize that the day of judgment is going to result in everlasting division as the sheep of our Savior are divided from the goats who remain under the condemnation of the law forevermore. From this, we see that the day of the Lord will cause the division of relational connection as believers enter into the millennial kingdom. And the day of the Lord will cause the division of eternal condemnation as unbelievers are, are separated from our Savior and his saints. Thirdly and finally, I want to consider how the day of the Lord will cause the division of emotional consternation. And you might be thinking, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, with that, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his audience to understand that the day of the Lord will be a time of great consternation. And with this as the focus, uh, look with me again here at Luke chapter 17. 
I want to draw your attention to verse 34. Uh, uh, again, the Lord Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So from this, we see that where this is going to happen is in California, in a hotel, where the eagles are going to engage in a reunion tour. But uh, maybe not. I've heard worse interpretations. Just let me put it that way. The disciples want to know where. Where is this happening? Or in other words, they're asking, where in the world would the day of the Lord result in the division of believers and unbelievers? And according to Jesus, this division is going to occur in every place where the eagles gather together around the carcass of a dead body. Just to be clear, the Greek word rendered eagles, well, it's it's also a, a reference to vultures, for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 37 in this way. Where will this happen, Lord? The disciples asked. Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. As we consider our Savior's strange response here, it's important to understand that vultures, they're known for the way they gather around carcasses. I'm sure we've all been on lovely uh, trips through the, through the hill country only to come around a corner and there's a, there's a uh, what, a murder of vultures or a flock of vultures, whatever you want to say, you know, and there they are, uh, you know, and, and, and what does that tell you? But there's a dead deer there in the road. Now, where, where does this sort of thing happen? Wherever there's vultures. And where are there vultures? Everywhere. You know, some places have old world vultures. Some places have new world vultures. We don't have time to get into all the taxonomy here. But, uh, but let me just leave it at this, that everywhere you go in the world, you're going to find some sort of bird of prey consuming a carcass. Everywhere. Jesus here is assuring his audience that the day of the Lord will occur everywhere. And it's interesting to point out here that, you know, Jesus not only mentions the night when some will be taken and some will be left, but also the day. And chances are that's happening at the same time. So it's happening everywhere in the world, regardless of whether it's night or day. There's going to be some who are taken, brought into companionship with Christ Jesus, and some who are sent to the judgment. We should also notice that the day of the Lord will occur at a time when the vultures will consume the dead bodies of human beings because that really is what Jesus is talking about. Not deers, not dogs, not raccoons, but humans. To prove my point, Let's consider the way that John describes it in the book of Revelation. If you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, you see it's here in the 19th chapter of Revelation where we find John the Revelator. He's presenting us with a prophetic picture of this day when Christ Jesus will return and he will begin to conquer the armies of the Antichrist. Now, there's already going to be, you know, what we would probably call World War III happening. And no doubt that the Valley of Armageddon is already filled with dead bodies at this point in time. 
But you better believe that Christ Jesus will come and conquer the armies of the Antichrist and fill the valley of Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo, with dead bodies. And the vultures will come and consume them. Let's consider how John puts it here in Revelation chapter 19. Look with me there, beginning at verse 11. John declares, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. There's that sword of division. It's the word of God. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. Wow. In John's vision, he sees this day of the Lord as a time of great bloodshed. And and one reason why is because, you know, this is in the middle of World War III. But also, this is going to be the time when Christ Jesus returns as a conquering king. He's going to return and defeat the armies of the Antichrist. And not only that, but he's going to destroy those who tried to destroy the apple of his eye. And as the Lord destroys the enemies of Israel, that's when an angel will invite the vultures to come and consume the flesh of the fallen. I believe that this is what Jesus was talking about. When he says, when when you see the body, you'll see the vultures too. With all this in mind, you better believe that the day of the Lord is going to be a day that causes the division of emotional consternation. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's consider the way that the prophet Zechariah describes the day of the Lord. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Zechariah, I just want to take a moment to point out that the word consternation, it's not one we commonly use, but it, it actually speaks of the distress that we experience whenever we find ourselves dismayed with uh, some sort of devastating situation that we weren't expecting. There, there's a, a, a shock and surprise of something that just unfolds before our very eyes that we weren't ready for. Consternation refers to the anxious amazement that occurs within the the hearts of those who are shocked and surprised by a confusing turn of events that they weren't expecting. And with all this in mind, there should be no doubt in our minds that there's going to be great emotional consternation here on the planet on the day of the Lord. Think about the armies of the Antichrist. Do you think for one moment that they believe that their battle is going to be interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. 
in their plotting and scheming against the nation of Israel, there's no way they think, yeah, we're going to go to the Valley of Megiddo and engage in Armageddon and Jesus is going to come back and kill us all. No, it's going to be a shock. It's going to be a surprise. And they're going to be filled with emotional consternation as their campaign against the people of Israel is suddenly interrupted and stopped by the second coming of Christ Jesus. It's at this point in time when they will realize that they were on the wrong side of history. It's at that moment when they'll realize that they are the enemies of their creator by their own choice. At the same time, the Israelites who are still here, they'll experience emotional consternation as they discover that their promised Messiah is in fact the one they crucified. Let's consider how Zechariah describes this day here in Zechariah chapter 12. Look with me there, beginning at verse eight. Here the prophet declares, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Here in these verses, we find the prophet Zechariah describing this day of the Lord. And according to this prophecy, you know, this is the day when the Israelites who are there in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's second coming, they're going to look up, they're going to see Jesus Christ returning with his heavenly armies, which Christian includes us here. And it's at that point in time when they will look up and realize that the savior that they've been praying for, the Messiah they've been waiting for, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they see that this is the one their forefathers pierced, they will recognize that Jesus is the King of Kings and he is their promised Messiah. And as they begin to grasp this truth, you better believe that the emotional consternation from being surrounded by the armies of the world will then switch to, oh no, here comes this guy we've been rejecting for all these years. Here comes this savior whom our forefathers crucified. And according to Zechariah, they're going to mourn and they're going to grieve over the fact that their forefathers were the ones who called for the crucifixion of our Christ. And they're going to mourn and grieve as they consider how many of their kinsmen rejected their redeemer simply because of their hard heartedness. At the same time, they're going to rejoice they're going to rejoice as they realize that their savior has in fact come to save them. They're going to rejoice as they see our Messiah defeating the armies of the Antichrist. It's at that point in time when the emotional consternation of those who are about to be destroyed, that consternation will be replaced by the joy of Jesus as the people of God realize that their Messiah has come to save them. 
This is the day that Paul was pointing to in Romans chapter 11, where he declares, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. On the day when our deliverer returns, the emotional consternation experienced by the Israelites who are about to be destroyed by the armies of the Antichrist, that that concern and that fear and that shock will quickly be replaced with the realization that the Lord Jesus has come to save every Israeli here on the planet. They'll realize that their Redeemer has come to save them according to the Old Testament scriptures. And, and at the same time, the emotional consternation of those who sought to destroy the people of God will quickly become complete terror as they finally put all the pieces together and realize that the deliverer of Israel who has come to save the people who are still here, this is the same one who is about to send them to everlasting torment. And as we consider just, just all the shock and surprise and, and concern and anxiety, and this is clearly going to be a time of emotional consternation, but it's going to be a, a point of division too about what people are concerned about. The people of God, well, they'll be concerned that they're about to be destroyed until they see their salvation in Jesus Christ. And the people who think that they're about to conquer Israel, will suddenly be surprised by their destruction as Jesus condemns them to everlasting torment. As we, can as we take all of this into consideration, you know, I want to wrap up this study by, by just helping you to remember that the Lord Jesus didn't come to bring peace on earth. Not in this period of time, at least. And so many Christians have it in, in their mind that, you know, well, Jesus just wants me to go out and make peace with everybody. And it's just like, well, you don't want to be a jerk, but listen. We've been called to preach a message that will divide people. And, and I'm here to tell you that, that the world has no problem with division so long as it's the divisions that they've chosen. They're all about division. Uh, they want to tell you who's canceled and who's not canceled. And, and they want you to focus on the divisions of race and gender and class and these sorts of things. They've got no problem with division when, when they're the ones defining the dividing line. But you turn around and say, Jesus is the only way and he's your only savior. Oh, that's just divisive. You better believe it's divisive. Because that's the dividing line that Jesus will use when he comes to judge the world. He's not going to come back and say, well, how did you feel about transgenderism, you know? And, you know, did you wave the rainbow flag or not? You know, these aren't going to be the dividing points. The division will be whether you are a sheep of Jesus Christ or whether you are a goat who rejected him. That's the only division that matters. So the question is, what side of this dividing line are you on? 
Trust me when I tell you that the day of the Lord will cause the division of relational connection as those who believe in Jesus Christ are then ushered into the millennial kingdom of our our Lord where they will enjoy a relational connection with Christ and the saints of God. The day of the Lord will also cause the division of eternal condemnation as every unbeliever is then separated from our Savior and from his saints. And the day of the Lord will also cause the division of emotional consternation as those who are still here at the time of the second coming will be shocked and surprised by the second coming of Jesus Christ and as they look upon him who was crucified for our sins. There will be great emotional consternation here on this planet as the Lord Jesus prepares to establish his millennial kingdom. And and as we consider all of this together, there's some important instruction that the Lord Jesus gave in the same message, but it's found in the parallel account that we find in Matthew chapter 24. It's here in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus declares, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore. For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's reminding his disciples that there's no way for us to figure out the day and the hour of his second coming. And while I realize that this directly applies to the day of the Lord, which you know, could be a span of, of more than one day. It could be 18 months, according to some, and anywhere in between. And while Jesus is talking about his second coming here, I believe that the same statement can be applied to the rapture of the church. We don't know the day or the hour when the church will be raptured. And with that being the case, you know, I would encourage you to be extremely skeptical of those who love to pull out their charts and their graphs as they assure us that they've somehow cracked the code you know, and, and, and we can take this, you know, feast over here, the date of this feast, and we can take, you know, this calculation of the new moon and the Sabbath, and we can figure all this out, and we can do the calculation, carry the one, and all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, here is the date for the rapture. If you've been entertaining these sort of jokers on YouTube, stop it. They don't know what they're talking about. How do I know that? Because the Bible says you won't know the day or the hour. So, so stop trying to figure it out. There's no math equation for us to use here. There's no Bible code. The secret, you know, in the Bible codes, is you just got to figure out the geometria and come on. Calm down, Christian. We're not going to crack the code when Jesus says, you, you won't know. And knowing that these false teachers would come along and and make YouTube videos that captivate gullible Christians, the Lord Jesus simply instructs us here to do what? Watch. 
watch. That word watch is translated from a Greek word which is used metaphorically of those who actively and cautiously give strict attention to the events happening here in this world. Why? Well, because the, the Lord did give us the signs of the times. We might not be able to figure out the day or the hour. Is there evidence that this might be the month or the year? Huh? We should know the season, amen? And I believe we're in that season, which is why it's even more important to watch, pay attention to what's happening, know what's happening in the world, and know what the Bible says about it. That same word watch is used of those who take heed, lest through remission and indolence, some destructive calamity suddenly overtake them. In other words, watch your step, Christian. Watch your step because it doesn't take much to step off the narrow path and back onto the broad road that leads to our destruction. We need to watch our step as we follow Jesus Christ. And with that, I would ask, are you watching your step and are you watching what's happening in the world? Are you seeing the nations preparing for Ezekiel 38 and 39? Are you watching the tyrants of this world getting ready for the great reset? Or have you been blinded by the mass formation psychosis that has caused many Christians to believe that we really don't need to heed these words of Jesus Christ? I mean, it's been 2,000 years since he made the promise, and so why should we think that it's going to happen in our lifetime? Well, I think that because I'm watching. Knowing that there's coming a day, and what I believe to be in the very near future, when the Lord will divide the sheep from the goats, it's crucial, Christian, for us to take what little time we have left and use it for the glory of God. Let's use this time to reach the unbelievers that we love by presenting them with the gospel of grace so that they might trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And in this way, we can take the time that we have to help them avoid the everlasting destruction which is going to occur on the day of division when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back with that sword which will divide the sheep from the goats. Let's help the people that we know and love who don't yet trust in Jesus Christ to come to faith in Jesus Christ so that they might avoid the day of division. And so that they might be on the right side of that dividing line. Let's pray.